ever gone through false accusations where people have come and accused you of something or maybe been overly critical uh, about you, where you attempted to kind of fire back and uh, fight fire with fire. It, it can be very hard at times when you're in that situation and wondering what's the right response you know, to have. I remember someone one time accusing me of toilet papering their house one day. Ever done that? Anybody been there? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, they came, they, they totally accused me and I mean, it was true, I did it, but I was kind of surprised and a little bit hurt that they automatically suspected me. I was like, what is, that's not right. But here in Corinth, here in Corinth, the clamor of the critics has been growing against Paul. They attempted to discredit him and undermine him so that they could begin to gain that power and prestige and authority in the church of Corinth that Paul had planted and seen people raised up, become saved and, and growing in the Lord. And it's true that if we live honest and integral lives, we don't always need to defend ourselves when people are doing things opposite uh, of what is right and true. We can let God be our defense. And yet, as much as we know that to be true, in these last four chapters of 2 Corinthians, from chapters 10 to 13, we're gonna see Paul taking aim now at his critics, oftentimes quite sarcastically, with a little bit of irony, and he's defending his own authority as an apostle, the very thing that's been under attack by these false apostles in Corinth. And to some of us, this might seem like a little bit self-serving, this could be Paul looking in a, in a bit of moment of weakness, trying to elevate himself or defend himself. We might think that this isn't the right thing to do, but Paul is doing so, and I want you to understand this, Paul is doing this, taking this action, because he doesn't want the work that's been established in Corinth now to be hijacked and derailed by these false apostles. He doesn't want this minority group of people to undo all the good that's taking place in Corinth for the Lord and because of the Lord. So Paul is standing up now and he's kind of playing the apostle card, laying down his authority to address the wrongs that are taking place to protect the church. So over these last four chapters now in 2 Corinthians, we're gonna see Paul getting a little bit more feisty ready to fight, but he keeps things in perspective because this is not a battle to wage in the flesh. You need to remember that. This is not a fleshly battle we fight, but it's a battle fought on a different level, one that we're gonna be looking at and dealing with here today. Now, just to share from a commentary by Ogilvy some of the things that Paul's up against, a close look at all four chapters seems to reveal the extent and the viciousness of what was being said by a very aggressive minority in the church at Corinth. Evidently, they said, first of all, that Paul was only brave when he was writing letters, but cowardly in these face-to-face -face situations. They would say that his refusal to accept support was a sign that he was inferior. They said thirdly that he did not <clears throat> have the same kind of, couldn't talk very well, his voice got a little rattled at times. <clears throat> thirdly, they said that he did not have the same kind of relationship to Christ that they had. In addition, number four, they made fun of his appearance and his speaking ability, that was true. Number five, they said that his boasting was unbecoming of an apostle. So while these five charges do not exhaust the list even of the kinds of attacks that Paul went through, we can see from them that Paul was dealing what Paul was dealing with. And his answers are spread out now in, in um, 
defense of these accusations, his answers are spread out over the remainder of these chapters here in Corinth. And so we're going to look here at a couple of things in the section we're taking here in 2 Corinthians 10. We're going to look at the attacks from false apostles, but we're going to look at the actions of true apostles. So the attacks from false apostles, read again with me verse 1. We read there, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. So Paul right away identifies himself as, listen, I'm writing this, and I'm writing this from a heart here. This is, this is me kind of pouring myself out here in what is being said. He identifies himself. Now, one piece of criticism or attack against Paul by his critics was to say that his bark was worse than his bite. That, you know, they would say that Paul, as long as he was with pen in hand and a thousand miles away from the people in Corinth, oh, this guy could come across as authoritative, as bold, as strong, but in person, it was another story altogether. So they tried to claim that Paul was quite soft and timid in person. The Paul behind the letters is not the Paul that you meet in person. But you see, they understood or misunderstood the meekness of Paul for weakness. This is how Paul is identifying himself as, or at least he's pleading with them, it says in verse one, through a spirit of meekness now to listen and to receive what he's saying. He's coming and pouring out his heart. I, Paul, myself, I'm pleading with you. And I'm pleading with you in meekness, yes, for you to receive these things for your own health and, and blessing there in the church. Now, Paul is no stranger to being bold, brash, bombastic. I mean, Paul's had that personality before. Before he came to Christ, he was out there causing problems for other Christians and, and towards the church. This guy knew what it was like to play the authority card. Look at what we read here in Acts 26, verse 10 to 11. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints. I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when, notice this, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged, enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Does this sound like meek and gentle Paul? No way. I mean, this guy knew what it was like to be authoritative and to be strong and bold. But now we're reading about Paul. What, what gives here? Well, what gives is that Paul met Jesus and Jesus transformed his life. Now he's pleading with the believers in Corinth through this now meekness and gentleness to receive him and to listen and follow his instructions. He's not coming down with this authoritative, if you don't listen to me, man, you're gonna pay. He's not doing that. He's coming in that spirit of meekness and gentleness. And notice that Paul says, it's the meekness and gentleness of what? Of Christ. This isn't something that just is, is in and of himself. This is the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul's been transformed by Jesus Christ. He's not succumbing to the person that he once was. He's not using that you know, default line we love to use when we're not doing what we should do by saying, well, that's just the way I am. Ever done that before? Ever, ever done so? You're just like, well, sorry, you just gonna have to receive it because that's just the way I am. It's not the way that we need to be. It's not the way that we should stay or remain when we've encountered Christ. Are you allowing him to change you and to continue his work in you? How often have you settled on that statement, this is just the way I am? Because, well, if it's not representing Jesus or it's not biblical, then guess what? Change. 
But that change is not in you. That change comes in and through Jesus Christ and being transformed into his image. You don't have to remain the way you were because you've been made new in and through Jesus Christ. I know when I <clears throat> got married, I came to my wife and I said, listen, honey, uh, I just don't do dishes. That's just the way I am. My wife said, well, I don't make dinner for people that don't do dishes. That's just the way I am. And I've become a dishwashing veteran. I mean, it's like, I've changed. There's change as possible. We can do it, guys. And we should be willing, more than willing to change, but more so, we should be more willing to be made more like Jesus. And this is what Paul is identifying here. Notice this description Paul gives. It absolutely models Jesus. You know, the only autobiographical statement that Jesus gives of, of himself is found in Matthew 11, verse 29. And this is what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what, gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And notice Paul is repeating these same attributes here in, verses, in verse one here. He, he says that he's pleading with this meekness and gentleness, but then he says that he comes to them in a lowly manner. That's the very attitude and characteristic that Jesus gives of himself. And, and to come lowly means that he comes humbly and without trying to raise himself up, without trying to be this guy that's like the kingpin, the, the boss, you know, that you just have to obey or else. Paul comes lowly humbly. But again, those in Corinth that were undermining Paul, they mistook this meekness for weakness. They, they misunderstood this humility for futility. But meekness, understand, really means strength under control. We think of meek as those people today that are just like, they're so soft and wishy-washy. They just can't do anything. They're just like, ugh, meek, right? That's how we oftentimes think of meek. But biblically, Meek means strength under control. Listen, Jesus was meek, yet there were times he exercised this authority. He would come into the temple, right? And he would see all the, 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 the junk that was going on, people that were abusing the system, exchanging money for temple shekels at exorbitant exchange rates. They were profiting off of the people, the worshipers coming in. People were abusing these things and Jesus comes in and sees all this going on. My house, my father's house would be a house of prayer. And so he sees this going on. What does he do? He doesn't flip out in a rage. He stoops down, the Bible tells us. He gathers some cords and he makes a whip. And then he begins to overturn the tables and drive out the people that were abusing what was going on here. He gives them a bit of a, a holy spanking. But it's not, it's not somebody that's acting in a rage. It's meekness, it's strength under control. Jesus had complete strength and authority, but he exercises in a way that needed to be portrayed to get the message across, not in a rage, but calmly gathering a whip and taking care of business. Now, in the end of verse one, Paul is, is somewhat sarcastically repeating the sentiment of his critics that you know they were the ones saying, oh, in presence, he's just a, a lowly, meek, weak guy. He's really nobody that we should be listening to, certainly not gathering you know, instruction or authority from. So Paul's kind of sarcastically saying, oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm pleading with you through the meekness and gentleness of Christ, but you know, in presence, I'm just lowly among you. And though Paul was, he's kind of using this as a bit of a, a sarcastic tone because this is what was being said against him in a negative way because they saw meekness as weakness. So 
Paul now is coming to them. He's repeating these things. And, and now he's saying that, uh, you know, he's bold. He's, he's just coming, only being bold in writing. And we've all been there, right? We've all, we've all been in those places where we've written something and we've written things in defense or against something that's, you know, come against us and we've written it with a bit of rage. We're like, I can't believe that person said that about me. I can't believe that person thinks that, oh my goodness, I'm, they're gonna get it now. And you're just like typing away and you, you hit send and the second you hit send, you're like, oh, I shouldn't have sent that. It's like right away, automatic. You're like, oh, that was bad. And you're like, can I get that back? You know, it's funny. We've all been in those places where we've done things, we've reacted in a way, and then we kind of regret it, right? Apple now, in fact, is coming out with, with their Apple Mail program by which you can undo sent messages up to like 10 seconds, or you can schedule your sent messages to go after so that you get a bit of time to kind of calm down, think about what you've written, and be like, yeah, I probably shouldn't send that. Let me go back and get that out of there, right? You know, that's what they've done now because they know the condition of the human heart. They know that we're gonna respond these ways that aren't always favorable. Well, Paul's saying, listen, you think I'm, I'm writing only boldly. Well, there's gonna come a time now where you're gonna see that yes, I write boldly because he's writing truth and he's writing authoritatively. He wants this message to come across. He's being unreservedly and bold in his writing, but it wasn't that he was just timid in person. He just wanted to model the gentleness and kindness of Jesus when he was with them, but he certainly knew that there were times when that boldness was necessary in person. And we're gonna see that here. Look at verse two. He says now, but I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold without confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So here now Paul is warning his critics that if they think he's just some big softy in person, it's time to batten down the hatches, get ready because Paul's coming and he's coming with a different attitude now by which he knows these people need to be corrected, they need to be rebuked and they need to be put in their place because of what they're doing. They're gonna see a different side of Paul and he's kind of warning them now. But again, this isn't what Paul wants to do necessarily, but because of the problems that these false apostles were causing, he's, just, he's not gonna go easy on them. There's times where boldness is necessary. Listen, I hope you come to know me as, you know, a, a gentle, kind, loving, sympathetic, caring, handsome, <laughs> modest, humble kind of person. I hope that's kind of, you know, who you see. But when, but when someone comes that wants to cause problems or harm in the church or against my family, I'm gonna hulk out. You're gonna see a different side of me that is gonna be done in love, but it's gonna be different. I remember a time at a church I was uh, a, an associate pastor at, and we had this person coming in to the services and they, they would leave these little pamphlets and literature around in the back. And it was literature that did not line up with what we believed. Barely, you could even say barely even Christian. Uh, I would say it wasn't Christian. And so I had to go to that person and say, listen, you can't leave this stuff around. This isn't in line with what we believe. Well, they would come back and guess what? After removing all that, they would go put it out again. And this repeated time and time. And I tried coming in gentleness and in love and just letting them know. And finally, after this happening repeatedly, just not listening at all to the council here, I finally had to just kind of 
come with that authoritative boldness and just really lay into them. And I raised my voice. I got a little bit uh, angry in a righteous indignation, got a little bit angry. And I just had to come down that person and literally almost physically throw them out of the church. That little 98-year-old woman barely knew what hit her. It's like, but, but see, Paul's not wanting these believers in Corinth now to get hit in the crossfire with what he's got to deal with, with the false apostles. That's why he says, I beg that when I'm present, I may not be bold without confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So he's dealing with the critics, but he's also addressing all the people in Corinth that were believers saying, listen, receive this. Like, like I want you to see gentle, meek, loving, caring Paul. I don't want you to be hitting a crossfire now because you're not listening and following just in the, in the wise counsel of truth that we have here. So he's looking now to reserve that boldness just for those that need it. And that's the false apostles there. So we've seen the attacks of the false apostles. Let's look into verse three and begin to look at the actions now of true apostles. So we read in verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not walk or war, sorry, according to the flesh. So these critics were claiming that Paul is just acting in the flesh here. He's just following his own carnal desires, basically. He's, he's walking in the flesh. He's walking, they would say at the end of verse two, according to the flesh. Paul says, listen, there's a big difference between uh, walking in the flesh versus walking according to the flesh. They were trying to make this about, you know, uh, Paul's morality, that he's, he's walking in sin. He's not really truly following God. He's walking according to the flesh. Paul says, listen, though we walk in the flesh and, and we all do, Paul's referring to his humanity, his flesh and bones. He's a person that's, you know, dealing with the things of this world. He's, he's walking in the flesh in a physical way, but he says, but, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. In other words, we don't follow the, the systems of this world. We don't follow the dictates of our own desires and flesh and try to you know, fight fire with fire, try to wage war with human ingenuity or through worldly wisdom. We don't fight that way. And when we do, that's fighting the wrong fight. This is what Paul is addressing here. Notice he says in verse four, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. See, here are some fabulous verses here that if you love to mark your Bibles, underline, highlight these things. But you see, Paul was entering into a battle with these false apostles and their false accusations against them. But Paul's weaponry, Paul's action now against these things is not on a physical level. It's not taking a physical nature of attack. In other words, he says, it's not carnal. It's not of the flesh. Again, like we said, it's not these, this human ingenuity. It's not fighting as the world and those opposed to God would fight. Rather, it's a, it's a whole different level. It's a whole different plane, the battle that we're in. It's a spiritual nature. There are weapons that are, uh, these are weapons, Paul says, that are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. These are weapons that are not connected to us, but they're connected to God. They're mighty in God. 
It's through his strength, through his power. And that's that idea, mighty is speaking of that word power. Comes from that, that, that word by which dynamite comes from. You know, where it's, it's, it's explosive. There's, there's, uh, there's response and reaction to these things in a, in a good way. It's mighty in God, it's powerful for pulling down strongholds. These are more beneficial than any other kind of weapon. Now, Paul uses this Greek word, Okuroma for strongholds, and it's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. And, and that idea of, of strongholds, Okuroma means uh, a castle or a fortress, and is further defined as anything on which one relies. It can also speak of the arguments and the reasonings by which a, dis, a disputant endeavors to fortify his opinion and defend it against his opponent. So these strongholds mentioned in verse four are in the context that we're dealing with, referring to the arguments or theories that those in the church, and especially the false apostles, were bringing against Paul. They're trying to say all these things and they're building this stronghold. They're building this kind of fortress by which they're putting themselves above Paul, but also in putting themselves above Paul, they're kind of putting themselves even above God because they're not speaking truth. They're not speaking the things of God. They're building a fortress that's putting themselves above all that's of God. That's why Paul says that these weapons that we use cast down arguments in every high thing that opposes or exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Because these corrupted people in Corinth, they were coming and looking to promote their way, their thought, their agenda. And in so doing, they were expressing that their way was better than God's way. They were exalting themselves against God or against the knowledge of God. Now, when you see these things going on, it can kind of get your blood boiling. When it's an affront to truth, an affront to God, you want to engage these things on a physical level because our, our, our flesh gets boiling and we're like, this is not right. And we have that kind of righteous indignation that wells up in us. Yet Paul saw that he didn't have to fight them in the flesh. In fact, when we begin to fight against these things in the flesh, we become defeated. You see, we're no longer to be ruled or mastered by the flesh any longer. We're no longer to worry about things that are, are taking place so much on a, on a physical plane when it's against us. We don't need to be ruled by or mastered by the flesh any longer. And when, you see, we begin to engage in battle in a carnal matter, as Paul says, or in a fleshly matter, again, which may not just be physically, but through the same uh, means as the world, such as gossip or slander, then what we're doing is we're entering into the devil's territory. We're entering in the devil's playground because Satan knows if he can draw us into battle in the flesh, then he's got us. He's got us right where he wants us because we'll never win that way. We need to rely upon the weapons that God has given us. We need to fight these battles that we're engaging in. And trust me, my friends, we are in a battle, whether you know it or not, because there's a very real enemy of your soul that wants to drag you down, that wants to build up strongholds by which he can seek to exalt himself or use others to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God and bring you in a place of defeat and weakness. We're in a battle. But understand what the, the battle actually is. When that person that is causing problems for you and you get a little bit bothered and bitter, battle's not against that person. 
It's against the enemy. That battle is not against your spouse. Understand that the spiritual realm that's taking place to the enemy wanting to poke and prod and, 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 and feed you the lies to make you think that's the problem in front of you. It's not the problem in front of you. Problem is the enemy who's at work through all these things and battling on a spiritual level. But understand that the word of God has given us the tools, the weapons. Paul says, our weapons are not carnal. They're not fleshy. They're not of this world. They're not through your own actions and, and reasoning and thinking. No, they're mighty in God. And Paul, thankfully in God's word, lists some of the, the weapons or more so the, the armor that we have to stand strong in the battle that we're in. It's found in Ephesians 6, verse 14 and 18. And this is what Paul says. Standing, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God right here, my friends. And then he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So understand the way that the enemy wants to come against you. He wants to, first of all, uh, uh, attack and bring doubts into your mind, bring you in a place of guilt, make you think through deception that your problem is really that person. And if you can just bring that person down, then everything's gonna be solved. And the enemy wants to bring you into the arena, the physical, thinking that's the battle you need to fight, and it's not. Paul lists all these armor now that we're equipped with to stand strong and to resist the enemy. The Bible says that resist the devil and he will flee from you. So first of all, what do we see? We see the belt of truth. The belt of truth is that piece of armor that's first and foremost because it kind of binds all the other armor together. It kind of begins, everything connects to that and it keeps everything in place. If you don't have that belt, some of you dads might know the problem if you don't leave the house with a belt on that's secure, right? I'll leave it at that, but the belt is important. And so it is with our armor. Everything kind of connects to it, attaches to it, keeps everything in place. That's what truth does. Truth keeps us solid. Truth gives us that firm footing and, and firm grounding by which we know when things are, are out of place. It's not lining up with the truth. Not only is truth the beginning point, but it's the bookends of this here because Paul lastly lists the sword of the spirit, which is the only, it's not only defensive, but it's offensive. It's the only offensive armor that we have. Everything else is defensive, by which again, we're called just to stand strong, resist. We're not called to go and attack. We're called to stand strong, but there are times where we need to wield the sword to rightly divide the truth. And it's the word of God, which is true. So we got the bookends, the belt of truth, and we got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is where we find truth, right? And we need to be established in the truth. So we know that God has given us these tools now, weapons by which we have the truth, the word of God, and how important it is to be in the word of God and to get the word of God in us, but then also through prayer, just taking time. Paul ends here in verse uh, 18 of Ephesians 6, that praying always with all prayer and supplication of the spirit, being watchful to this end, being watchful because we know that the devil is at work. We know his schemes. We're not unaware of these things. Paul writes about that in, in, in Corinthians, that we know that the schemes, the, the workings of the enemy, don't be surprised 
by what he does. But, but we gotta know how to, how to fight. And we gotta understand the right battle and the right fight to fight because we so often allow the enemy to draw us into the wrong fight. And we end up devouring one another, hurting one another. And that's not, the, that's not what we need to be doing. Now, these strongholds get built up by the enemy around us by trying to, again, exalt things against the knowledge of God. And those strongholds get built by the enemy, but also get built by those being influenced by the enemy. But not only are those strongholds external, but they're also internal. There are fortresses not just on the outside, but also on the inside, that we need to be aware that these strongholds can be internal when we begin to give the enemy a foothold in our lives. Maybe it's over an area of, of sin or weakness that we've not surrendered, that we've kind of held on to and thought, you know what, I've really cleaned up a lot of my life, but there's this one little pet sin that I kind of enjoy. Listen, if you're holding on to that and giving allowance for it, you're allowing the enemy to build a stronghold in your life that's gonna weaken you and end up being uh, a means to defeat you. When we begin to succumb to fleshy desires or attitudes or emotions that are in opposition to God and his word, those strongholds are getting built stronger and higher and begin to crowd out the things of God because God is the one that's to be exalted and lifted high in our lives, only him, nothing else. That's why Paul says that we need to bring every thought now into captivity to the obedience of Christ. This is so important, my friends, in our walk with the Lord. Because I talk to so many Christians who are struggling because they're allowing the enemy to have that stronghold, whether it be through guilt, whether it be through doubts, and they're allowing the enemy to weaken them and because they're failing to take every thought captive. And if you don't take every thought captive, then you're gonna become a captive. You're gonna become defeated. You're gonna become a prisoner to those thoughts that are not of God because you're not standing in the truth. Take it captive. Grab that thought when it comes in your mind and go, does this line up with the word of God? Is this something I need to dwell on? Is this gonna impact me in a negative way by dwelling on it? Is this of the Lord? Is this truth? And it, if it is not, you need to hit the delete button. You need to send that to the trash. You need to say, I'm not gonna think about that because that's not of the Lord. I'm gonna take this thought captive. Every thought or lust or impurity, grab a hold of it and say, this is gonna exalt above God and weaken me and bring me to defeat if I don't grab a hold of it and be surrendered to it. Take every thought captive. How important that is for us as believers to do. Philippians 4, 8 to 9, 8 to 9 says it well. We don't have time to read through all of it, but finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, if any virtue, praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Think about those things. Fill your mind with the right things, truth. And that's what meditation biblically is. It's filling, not emptying your mind. It's filling your mind with what is right and true. So take every thought captive. Paul says in verse six to close and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul was ready now to come and confront their disobedience. He's not gonna be a guy that just 
talks the talk and hides behind the pen. No, he's gonna walk the walk, the very thing that his critics said that he wouldn't do. But first, he's gonna give those time to become obedient to these things that he's already addressed and given to them to do, to align with that which is of God and to tear down those strongholds themselves that are raising themselves up against the knowledge of God. How about us? Are we walking in obedience to the things of God? My friends, you have to remember, we are in a battle. Whether you think so or not, your life might be just coasting along nice and fine and comfortable and others are going, who are those people? What is the matter with them? How, do, how are they doing that? Some of you might be thinking everything's great, but understand you're in a battle. As Christians, now we've not been called to board the cruise ship. We've been called to board the battleship here, right? And we're in a battle, but we need to understand the battle that we're fighting, the real enemy and how we stand strong against the enemy. It's not gonna be through the flesh. It's not gonna be through us taking action that we deem appropriate or that is combating fire with fire on a physical level. Like we sang first of all today, we're gonna fight this battle on our knees because the battle belongs to the Lord. Trust him, rely upon him. But the word reminds us many times how we're called to warfare. Worship team, Actually, no, worship team, stay. We don't have time, sorry, we gotta, nah, okay. Stay where you are. I'm not gonna end with that song. Second Corinthians 6, 7 in closing. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. First Timothy 1, 18, this charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who, enlist, who enlisted him as a soldier. And Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Keep fighting the good fight, soldier, because it's a battle worth fighting for. We're in a battle but fight the right fight. And may I just say in closing, dads, man, we love you. But understand the battle that you're in too because the world is looking, the forces of evil are looking to attack fatherhood and bring men down to a relegated place of inferiority, of incompetence, and they make you see it on TV shows, you see it in the world where we're seeing the feminizing of men. Why is it that it's, it's constantly drag queens? It's men trying to be women that we see predominantly in our society today. There is a weakening of fathers because the enemy knows if he can tear down the family and it starts with the father, if they can tear down the family, making the father, the weak, relegated, put to the side figure, then he's gonna get into the family and weaken the family and weaken society as a result. Men, I, I call you to stand strong and to know the fight that you are in against the enemy and against the things of this world. You're not called to stand up and to now, with a roar, just take charge and be, be heavy-handed. No, look at Paul. In meekness and in gentleness of Christ, you're called to love your family, but you're called in that love to lead your family 
and to be a model of Jesus. Don't let the world tell you that's wrong or that that's toxic masculinity. Don't let the world tell you that. Stand strong for Christ in your home, in your family. Be the fathers that you are called to be in love and leading well. Fight the good fight, all right?